0: Well, thank you, worship team, outstanding uh, leadership this morning. Thank you, Sean, so much. Great job, appreciate uh, you so much already. Um, I'm always excited and, and look forward to uh, worshiping with my church family, but um, this morning is even sweeter since I've got my family here, at least most of them. Uh, my wife, Janine, arrived on Friday night, along with my 12-year-old daughter, Julia, so I'm glad to have them, them here, and uh, my life has been way better uh, since they got here just a few days ago. And i uh, uh, been having a good time with my 20-year-old son, who's been so helpful in getting things established in our house, but glad to have two of the other six here. Now I just need to get my two teenagers here, and they're going to be here one or on Friday, actually, and had no idea how much I would miss them. Uh, they bring so much joy to me, and I can't wait to have them here on Friday. Uh, as I preach this morning, um, you should know that that two of our pastors are actually preaching somewhere else, and so... Pastor Chris and Pastor Brandon are preaching in Honduras. Brandon is in uh, San Juan, and Chris is in a place that he said it's called Feb 21, uh, which was a reference to the date it was established, and so uh, we're going to pray for those two in just a minute. I love the fact that we don't just talk about making disciples of all nations, we're actually doing it, uh, even as we speak this morning. So before we get into the text of Scripture, let's pray for our fellow uh, pastors and servants. Uh, Lord... We do thank you that it is by the blood of Christ that we have forgiveness of sins. And as the verse of that song uh, says so clearly, it's not by our righteousness. Nothing that we could do, have done, could ever render us holy in your sight. But it is the righteous record of Christ which is imputed to us by faith. And it's by that that you look at us and you see us as perfect, righteous, and holy. And Father, we praise you that you've made it possible for us to know you and be reconciled to you. And uh, what a great delight it is, Lord, to come together and to sing your praises. Um, Just so thankful for this church, for this church family, and the way that they have loved me already and loved us as a family. And And I just pray, Lord, that you would minister to us this morning in a profound way so that you would get all the glory, so that we would be confronted yet again with your majesty and your beauty and your power, and we would leave here uh, changed. But We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, As I mentioned, we moved into our house here in Alabama about, well, actually less than two weeks ago. And so in that time, I've been trying to scope out the neighbors to see what might be a good time and, and a good way to introduce myself to them. I, I hope I've not been scoping them out in a creepy way, um, but I have noticed, and I'm trying not to be offended by this, whenever I look at a particular house, the blinds shut immediately. So maybe I'm, uh, I'm taking this uh, too intensely. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what's a good way for me to sort of to, to bridge that gap, to, to start that initial conversation Um, and getting to know them. And Janine's actually way better at this than I am meeting our neighbors. Um, But I know that we're actually going to have some additional neighbors, new neighbors, because in in our development, new houses are popping up. In fact, in in our house, if you look to the left, there's a a new house that's uh, being built, and then across the street diagonally, another new house. And what I've noticed with this, of course, as you know anything about construction, is Uh, Before they start with the drywall or even uh, the studs or framing or anything like that, they always start by establishing the builders do a foundation. And so before anything is put uh, above ground, a foundation is laid. And so this is kind of what we're doing with this brief five-week series before we jump into 1 Timothy and look at that uh, book over a period of months is we're trying to lay the foundation, establish the footers, if you will, for everything that will follow, and last week, we, we answered the question, why? why? Why do we do anything we do? Why do we do what we do as a church? Why do we do what we do as individuals? And we, we answered that question from Isaiah 43. And we said, the why can be answered this way, that the purpose of our existence, both as individuals and as a church, is to glorify God. So we exist to, to glorify God. And I said last week, it's not as though God needs us to be glorified. Or to be glorious. We don't add anything to God's glory. We don't, we don't subtract anything from God's glory. However, uh, whenever by our words, our actions, our worship, our motives, we acknowledge and we accentuate God's character, His perfections, His knowledge, His holiness, His love, His power, His grace, His mercy. And we, we accentuate those things. And our dependence thereon we actually glorify God, which God delights in. Uh, for example, when we pursue reconciliation with someone, if someone in your life that you're, you're unreconciled with, when we pursue reconciliation with someone who's wronged us, we glorify God, a God who is himself a reconciling God. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we glorify God. A God who himself suffered by his own choice through and in the person and work of Jesus. So we looked at that last week. We answered the why question. And this morning and we too we we're, we're looking at another sort of foundational element, another pillar, and that is the gospel, the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church and in the life of the believer. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to cover five verses, but let me start by reading verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, right away, I want you to notice, right away, Paul addresses this church at Corinth, he addresses them as brothers. Now, this, Paul actually uses that phrase, that word brothers, more than a dozen times in this book to the church at Corinth. So so Paul's actually talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to to people who have put their faith in Christ, those who have been reconciled to God by faith in Christ. He's talking to Christians, and he says to Christians, let me remind you of the gospel. Now, why does Paul uh, deem it necessary to remind these believers of the gospel, which is something he does in, in every one of his letters? He does it to the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae. He keeps preaching the gospel to Christians. Why would he do that? Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But look at the verse, uh, verse 1 again, the, the la- last part of it. It says, this gospel I preached to you, which you received. It says, which you received. Now, to receive something... In, in Paul's language, it's not just like getting a, a UPS package at the door, right? Where you can, you know, we have people in our neighborhood in California that did some of their business by Amazon shipping, and so there would be boxes outside their door all the time. Sometimes they would pick them up. Sometimes they would stay there for days. Paul's not talking about receiving something like you get a package that you can kind of ignore. When he says "received," he's saying this gospel is something you've, you've bought into. This gospel is something that has transformed you. This gospel is, is something that you have, that is, has encountered you and changed you. In fact, in the same sentence, Paul will say, it's that very gospel on which they have taken their stand. Paul says, the gospel that I preached to you, which was the same gospel that every other faithful evangelist preached, was the gospel that you received uh, by virtue of your belief in it. And, and because of that, you've been made to be brothers. You believe the gospel and you were made to be brothers it's past tense. Paul's looking at the gospel's effect on these these now believers at Corinth. So here's the first reason that I say the gospel is central to us as believers and as a church. Our first point, the gospel is the power by which unbelievers are converted. So Paul makes this clear throughout his letters. In fact, there's kind of a I don't know if you want to call it a formula or a rhythm that he employs. He says, this is what you were. This is what you were. Here's what you are now. And this is what you will be. So he goes from from past tense to present tense to future tense. He says, here's what you were. Here's what you are because of the power of the gospel, which led you to repentance and faith. So the gospel is the power by which unbelievers are converted. Paul will call the the gospel, another book, the power of God unto salvation. Through the gospel, God takes hardened, stubborn, self-reliant people, and he breaks through their resistance, and he brings them to saving faith by the power of the Spirit. And how many times have we heard testimonies? And and I'm sure that as I get to know you over the months and years, and I hear your testimony, um, it will be something like this. and it, It always resembles this. Now, with some different variables, but I was lost and I was living for myself. I was independent and self-righteous. I thought I could do this on my own. And then at some point, and, and Jesus calls this the new birth, at some point I became aware of my own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And, and I realized I actually couldn't save myself. So what I was trying to do was, was, was futile. I couldn't save myself. God brought me to a place where I believed on Christ. I believed That Jesus is real. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for my sins. He was raised again on the third day. And this is through the power of the gospel. Unbelievers are made alive in Christ. But here's the thing. It's not just that the gospel is for unbelievers. Look at the second part of verse 1. Paul says, which you received, in which you stand. He goes on to say in in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. So he goes from past tense, the gospel which you received, to present tense, the gospel in which you currently stand. This is present tense. And what he's communicating here is that by standing in the gospel, or or better yet, by allowing the gospel to stand in us or to dwell in us, we will experience that transformation in the present, in our hearts and in our minds. So here's the second reason the gospel is central. And we're not going to go through the points this quickly, but I want to get to the second one and try to explain this. The gospel is the fuel by which believers are progressively sanctified. So not only is the gospel the the power by which the unbelieving are converted, but the gospel is the fuel by which the believer is progressively sanctified. Now, to be sanctified just means to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we know that this happens over time, doesn't it? It happens over the long haul. So it's not, I mean, it's a slow, it's a lifelong process of becoming, being conformed into the image of God's Son. And and sometimes, and maybe this is your experience, sometimes God will kind of miraculously deliver us from some particular sin tendency. And maybe it's maybe it's the tendency to lie and, and maybe before you in Christ, you know, you you just you couldn't really be believed because the things you said, and then and you were, and God saved you. He made you alive in Christ, and you no longer lie. Maybe it's a situation of anger, and I've heard this over and over, in, in, from people in their testimony. I was a very angry person until God made me alive in Christ. There was um when my parents were divorced, I really had no male spiritual influence for a long time, and there was a guy who his name was Walt Shirley, who was a sociology professor. At a a neighborhood college and uh, a neighboring college, and and he kind of took me under his wing, spiritually speaking. This is a former uh, boxer. I mean, he was a boxer who competed, but also a a brawler, a guy who would get in fights all the time, street fights all the time. And and I remember him sharing his testimony. He said, When God brought me to saving faith, I mean, there was a lot, I had a long way to go in a lot of areas, and still, he still has a long way to go. He's in his 80s now. But he said, That anger. God really helped me get get control of that by the Holy Spirit and then I became not an angry person like I was. Sometimes it's it's a miraculous way, but but the the way that we normally see work is over a long period of time, God actually works to conform us uh, into the image of his son. It's slow most of the time, but the way that God does that through the, the overall witness of scripture is that God actually conforms us or transforms us by the gospel, the Apostle Paul would tell the church at Colossi that God intends the gospel to not only grow wider in the world, as new people are coming to faith, but also deeper into Christians. It says this in Colossians 1, he writes, we thank God because the gospel has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, true transformation, I'm going to try to make sense of this by way of some illustrations in just a moment. But true transformation happens not as we kind of move beyond the gospel into other things. Sometimes people say, well, let's move into the deeper things. I say, what are the deeper things? They mean things like the timing of the rapture and modes of baptism. and that, That's not the deeper stuff. We, we actually grow, we're transformed as the gospel grows deeper in us, as we have a deeper understanding of the gospel. In fact, again, in verse 2, Paul says the gospel is that by which you are being saved, being saved by the gospel, if you hold fast to the word that I preached. See, your final salvation and my final salvation, these things don't just happen. They happen by means. And the means by which you and I continue in the faith is the regular and ongoing preaching of the gospel. I remember hearing... a. Well known Baptist preacher and author John Piper tell the story that when he first got into pastoral ministry, he spent some time as a professor and then moved into the pastoral world. And he said he thought that his job on Sunday mornings was twofold to edify the saints and to win the lost. So he said, you know, it's kind of simple to me. I thought I was there to, to build up and strengthen the saints, to edify the saints, but also to win the lost. And then he said that God showed him that he was missing one critical element in that equation. He was to preach to edify the saints and to win the lost, but also he was commissioned to save the saints, he said. He said, not that, you know, not that John Piper can do anything to save anyone, but those who are commissioned with the task of preaching the word are the vessels by which God actually saves the saints. It's kind of like what Paul would say to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, keep a close watch on yourself yourself and the teaching persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, Timothy can't save anybody. John Piper can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. This is something that God does, but God uses the proclamation of the gospel to actually cause the believer to persevere in the faith. In other words, God keeps those who are his through a regular dose of the gospel, a regular reminder of what he has done for us in Christ. Without a regular dose of the gospel, we don't persevere until the end because we actually ignore. It's not that God's not faithful, we lose our salvation, anything like that. But we we ignore the means by which God keeps those who are his, and then we demonstrate that we actually weren't his to begin with. So this is why gospel preaching was such a priority. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, as of first importance, what I also received. I want to pause there for just a moment. Paul says the gospel is of first importance. And this phrase carries this idea that it trumps everything else in terms of its priority in that everything else is built on the gospel. So he's not saying that the other things don't matter. He's not saying that the commands aren't important, the wisdom literature or anything like that. He's not saying any of that stuff is, is irrelevant or insignificant. He's simply saying that everything else is built on, built up on the gospel. Now, so someone might say, well, what about all the commands in Scripture? Are you saying that they're not important? I'm not saying that at all. Uh, the, the answer is uh, the commands of God are, are good. The commands of God are actually for our good. His law is perfect. We need law. The problem is the commands, the law, they tell us what to do but they don't really give us the desire to do them. They tell us what to do, but they don't really sort of move our hearts. It's the gospel that actually moves us. It's the gospel that that motivates us to obey. Now, this is where someone invariably says, well, but we need balance, don't we? We have to have balance. We have to have balance between what God has done and what we're supposed to do. We have to have balance between the proclamations of Scripture and the obligations of Scripture. Balance between law and gospel. Well, generally speaking, generally speaking, I'm all for balance. I'm all for balance. Uh, balance is, is a good thing most of the time, right? This is, I'm all for a balanced diet. This is why even though I have ice cream every night before bed, and now that I live like a mile for, or half a mile from DQ, I've, I've been there for six straight nights. Um <laughs> This is why, even though I have ice cream every night for bed, I always make sure that after lunch, I have some dark chocolate for the antioxidants. So that to me is, that's balance. So I'm, I'm for balance, generally speaking, right? I'm a, a balanced schedule. You know, if you, if you work too hard, but you don't enjoy life, then, you know, you're, you're not a lot of fun to be around. Balance is good, but balance is not always best. you know this? Balance is not always best. There's sometimes when we don't say, we don't, we don't actually need balance. We would never advise a young married couple to put some balance in their lives between fidelity and infidelity. We wouldn't say that. That's not balance. We ne- would never want, urge one of our kids to do better at balancing honesty and dishonesty. You know, I've noticed with you, uh, son, you just always tell the truth to me. I mean, why don't you just kind of, you know, give me a little lie every once in a while just to keep things balanced. We would never say that, would we? Balance is good in many occasions, but the Bible is actually a decidedly imbalanced book. And what I mean for that, the Bible is the story of a one-sided rescue for an undeserving people. The balance is not God say, okay, I'm going to go 50% of the way, and then you go the other 50%. We'll kind of meet in the middle at a very balanced point, and then that's how the salvation will work. That's not the way it works. In fact, from the very beginning, God creates Adam and Eve. Adam revolts against God. So what does God do? God goes after him. He goes after him and he says, Adam, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where Adam is. He's showing, you, he's showing Adam, I am a pursuing God. I'm a God who goes after those who are lost. Next up is Cain who, who kills his own brother. We have fratricide in the, in, the, in the scriptures. What does God do? He pursues Cain. He puts a mark on Cain so that Cain would not be killed. This is God actually going after. He's not saying, you meet me halfway. He says, I'm going to come all the way. I'm going to pursue you. In fact, then God calls Israel. And sure, he tells Israel to do some things, right? But that's not the point of the Old Testament. The, The emphasis in the Old Testament is not on Israel's obedience or lack thereof, but on God's sustaining grace, his unwavering covenantal affection, his mercy, his pursuit. In fact, it's the same way in the New Testament. Toward the end of the first century, the early church becomes besieged with false teachers. And these false teachers, they start to, to worm their way into the church and, and they start to tell the believers, look, it's not really about just grace and gospel and freedom. You have to make sure you're keeping all these rules. Make sure you're keeping the festivals. Make sure you're eating the right things. Make sure you're being circumcised. Make sure you're doing all the right things. And then God will approve of you. So God raises up apostles and, and uh, he sends people to, to remind the church of what Christ has done. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Moderation in all things except the gospel. Now let me just give you a... Any of you like history? Let me give you a three-minute... Nobody likes history, but I'm still going to give you a three-minute history lesson. Um, And what happened in the North American church in the last, I don't know, 500 years. And I'll keep it at three or four minutes. In the 16th century, which would have been the 1500s, in Europe and then later America... We experienced what's called the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, and other folks sought to, to recapture the doctrine of justification by faith, right? So they, and some of the reformers would actually lose their lives over this very thing, among other core doctrines. But that was one of the most pivotal times in, in Christian history, the, the Protestant Reformation. Well, on the heels of the Protestant Reformation came an era known as Protestant scholasticism, and uh, it's about as boring as it sounds, but during this period, and this went from the 16th to the 18th century, the focus became on achieving theological precision. So the whole thing was, we've got to get the answers right. Scholasticism, and the name even tells us, we've got to make sure we have the right answers. We've got to make sure that we've, we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, theologically speaking. All the, the, the focus, and I'm being a little overly simplistic, was on doctrinal uh, purity, Well, as you can imagine, some folks came along and, and like, we might be inclined to say, well, okay, if you get all the doctrine right, but but your heart's not changed, what's the point? I mean, what's the benefit? Just because you know all the right answers, what's the benefit? And so, some folks came along and said, "We, we have the knowledge, but where's the love for God? And where's the love for our neighbor? Where's the personal transformation? And so, in the middle of scholasticism really the second half of the 17th century, the era of pietism was born. And this is uh, heinrich uh, Muller and Johann Arndt and Philip Jacob uh, Spener and so on. And there the focus shifted to living a victorious life. So it's not so much about getting the answers right, but make sure that you're living right. Are you, are you experiencing victory in your life? Are you living a holy life? Are you living a sanctified life? It's less about, it was less about what you know and what you're, instead what you're doing. Well, pietism quieted down in the late 19th century and then virtually died, virtually died in the the 20th century, but not before the pendulum had swung completely in the opposite direction from scholasticism, so it was not about knowing the right things, it became almost not exclusively, but very much so about doing the right things, and that inspired folks like John Wesley to begin the Methodist movement, and Alexander Mack to begin the Brethren movement, and and that really would impact a lot of uh, denominations. And I've got about 15 seconds left in this history lesson. And what would happen then is with the free will Baptists and the Quakers and the regular Baptists and the Methodists and even some of the Presbyterian, the emphasis then became, which has is, which is now made it all the way to where we are, the emphasis every Sunday then became most always became a personal obedience, life change, transformation, getting your act together, together behaving the right way. So if you go to a church... Most churches, what you're going to hear, and I take vacation, when I go on vacation, we always try to go to a church wherever we are, you're most likely to hear something about what it means to get your life together. What are you doing? What are you doing? And so the emphasis then, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, again, during the period of pietism, the church's focus on the announcement of what God has done, which was at the heart of the Reformation, the gospel was supplanted by a message on moral improvement, sacrifice, obedience, personal holiness. And as I said, those things are important. Those things are important. The Bible makes demands. Jesus makes commands. Commands that when we obey are for our good and God's glory. So those things are important. However, they cannot become the focus. If the focus becomes what we're supposed to do, rather than what God has done for us in Christ, i.e. the gospel, then the church will slowly begin to die spiritually. Because you can go a lot of places and, and hear what you're supposed to do, can't you? But there's only one place, there's only one vehicle that is the beacon that heralds the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the church of Jesus. So we have to preserve the message of the gospel. Now, say, well, Is that really that important? I mean, is this really a matter of semantics? It's really not. The gospel is not news that if we do certain things, we will be loved, approved, received, and forgiven by God. The gospel is because of what Jesus has done. We can be loved, forgiven, accepted, adopted into God's family by faith alone. Now, here's what happens, and here's why this matters so much. If Christians think that the gospel is the command to do this or do that, then we will necessarily start to believe that our salvation is something we have to accomplish, we have to finish. So if the gospel is do this and do that, then then we we, we take the reins back. We feel like we have to do this. But if the gospel is, is rightly understood as something that God has done for us, then you know, God saves unworthy sinners. He's redeeming a broken world. He's, in fact, giving us everything we need in Jesus. Then we become grateful and joyful and worshipful and humble because we realize that I haven't done anything that, by which God should save me. This is purely a gift. So it changes the way that we treat other people. How else could Jesus say that to people that his yoke is easy? Now look at verse 3 again. Uh, The last part of verse 3 says, I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas then uh, to the 12. Now notice that Paul doesn't assume that his audience, even though they're believers, he doesn't assume that when he says gospel, they know what he's talking about. He actually goes ahead and defines it. He spells it out in clear language. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's how Paul defines the gospel. Now, just a quick word about the word gospel. It helps to remember that the gospel is not a book. So, I mean, we have the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But those are really testimonies from the uh, the first evangelists. The gospel is an announcement. The gospel is literally good news. It's the Greek word euangelion. It means, it means glad tidings or good news. The gospel equals good news. And the gospel is actually not a term exclusive to Christianity. At least it wasn't. It's not in ancient history, it wasn't. Actually, it was a term that was used a lot in the ancient world. For example, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is called the Septuagint, the term was used of reports of victory from the battlefield. So when the Philistines defeated the Israelites... On Mount Geboa in 1 Samuel 31, they sent messengers back to the land to spread the euangelion. This is again the subject, to spread the good news. Victory has been secured, that was called a gospel. In the early first century, the birth of Caesar Augustus was commonly referred to as the euangelion, the good news about a a so-called God who would restore order. So there were a lot of so-called gospels in the ancient world, but there's something unique to the, to the use of the word gospel in, in Christianity. Here's what historian and biblical scholar James Edwards says. In the Greco-Roman world, the word always appears in the plural, meaning one good tiding among others. But in the New Testament, euangelion appears only in the singular, the good news of God and Jesus Christ, beside which there is no other. There may have been many Gospels, declarations of good news, but only one has the power to transform lives. Only one has the power to transform marriages, and churches, and communities, and neighborhoods. And that is the beautiful, historic, and powerful announcement of Jesus Christ living a perfect life. Sent by God to die on a cross, a brutal death, and be raised again to new life. That's a story that actually redefines our identity. Maybe the best way to say it is this way, our third point. We look at this definition. The gospel is the good news concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done to put right our relationship with God. The gospel is the proclamation that Jesus lived, died, and was raised again to pay the penalty for my sin, for your sin, so that by believing in him, we could have the fullest life imaginable. The gospel is not something we do. It's not something we do, but something that has been done and something to which we must respond. I, was, I don't listen to a lot of preaching on the radio, but I'm in a new area, so I'm just hitting the scan button all the time, and, and if something catches my eye, either a song or message or something I kind of listened to. I heard this guy on the radio uh, the other day. I don't even know who it was because I didn't listen that long. Um, But this guy on the radio would say, we got to love our neighbor. That's the gospel. We got to do good for those around us. That's the gospel. We got to make sure that we're serving the least of these. That's the gospel. Well, that's actually not the gospel. I mean, those are good things. I think we should serve the least of these. We should love our neighbor. We should do good things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not something we do. The, something, the gospel is something that's been done. And sometimes I hear this, well, we've got to live out the gospel. You can't really live out the gospel. You can't live out news. It would be like, be like uh, you in your, in your home telling your, your kids, your wife, look, we're not going to watch the news and I'm going to act it out for you. And they'd be like, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me. What are you doing? I mean, what, Dad, why are you? I've got friends coming over. You're embarrassing me. Why, why are you doing this? You can't live out. Th- now, you can live in light of the gospel, you can live in a way, of course, that's informed by the gospel. But the gospel, again, is not something we do. It's something that has already been done. Now, you say, well, okay, you've made that point about eight times. Now, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, if we're just told what to do and we're not regularly told what's been done, that leads to a life of fear, anxiety, guilt, hopelessness. In other words, if we only hear what God calls us to do without what God has done for us, it destroys rather than builds our faith. We have to regularly hear the gospel because our hearts are hardwired for law, performance, justice. You, you get what you deserve. And of course, because we, we're hardwired this way, when we don't do what's right, we kind of brace ourselves for God's punishment. When we do what's good, we feel like, no, okay, now I deserve this. I deserve God's blessing. When we only hear what we're called to do, then every time we fail to, to do it, which we will fail to do it, it means our confidence in God's love is shaken. It means our motivation to obey Him is diminished. It means our joy in worship is hampered. And yet, we were, when we were reminded again and again and again and again of his unconditional, steadfast love for us in Christ, our faith is deepened, and we actually long to obey him. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is Augustine of Hippo out of the 4th century. He says this, When the assistance of grace is missing, that is to say, when the gospel is not proclaimed, knowledge of the law is more effective in producing a violation of the commandment. Where there is no law, neither is there transgression. He quotes Romans 4, says the apostle. The law commands more than it liberates. It diagnoses illness but does not cure. Indeed, far from healing the infirmity, the law actually makes it worse in order to move a person to seek the medicine of grace more anxiously and insistently because the letter kills but the spirit gives life. And this is not only true in the church. It's true in our life, in our relationships, in our families. Think of it this way. When have you felt most deeply in love? Is it not when you've experienced unconditional love from someone else? I mean, you, somebody can tell you, and I, I met with this couple uh, few, maybe seven, eight years ago, and I don't think I've shared this story before. This was a young couple. They were getting engaged, and, and then they broke off their engagement, and so I met with them a second time just with a young lady. And she was telling me, like, well, this guy, he, he promised he was going to marry me, and, he, and, he, and he's not. And I just kept listening and listening. And like, what do you, like, I didn't know, like, what are you asking me to do? She said, he, he, he and so I, what I realized as I talked to her, she wanted me to tell the guy, no, you need to love her, you need to marry her. That's not the way it works, is it? How would you feel if, if you started dating someone? I mean, most of you are beyond them. When you started dating someone, they said, look, you need to love me now. You're not going to love them. and That's not the way it works. You feel most in love when you experience love. When have you felt the most eager to give yourself to someone else, even sacrificially? Is it not when you realize how much someone else has given to you? When have you felt most motivated to forgive? Is it not... That moment that you have been forgiven. When you know you didn't deserve it. It's not the demands and the expectations and the commands that move us. But the experience of undeserved love. Which is spelled out in the gospel. The Bible says it this way. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the one who has been forgiven much. Who forgives much. It's the one who's been loved much, who then loves others much. And Of course, what God calls true is universally true. I was, about 15 years ago, I was counseling a young man who was 25 years old. He'd been married for about a year and met with him. And I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but he said, he was, he was sharing with me that he was experiencing a great deal of frustration in his marriage because there was no intimacy there. the wife was not giving herself to him physically. And he said, I, I, I literally get out and I walk the street at night out of frustration and anger. And I'm praying that God would take this anger. I'm so angry at my wife. And they've been married for a year. And I said, "Well, what, what do you, I mean, how are you approaching this with your wife? He said, I remind her on a regular basis from 1 Corinthians 7, your body is not your own, it's mine. I said, well, that's, that's kind of probably the starting point of your problem. That's not really going to do it, I don't think. He said, no, I want her to know. Look, she, she, she belongs to me, and, and her body belongs to me, and, and she cannot with. I said, no, that's, I said, just love her. Just love her. How are you showing her that you love her? And he took a while and couldn't really think of you know, what he was doing. I said, no, just love her. Show her that you love her. Show her that you love her when she does well and when she fails. Show her that you love her when she's, when she's a great wife and when she's not a great wife. Show her that you love her when she gives herself to you and when she doesn't give herself to you. Show her you love her. There was a TED Talk in 2009 by social scientist Daniel Pink, and it's at one point it was the most downloaded uh, TED Talk of all time. I think it's been surpassed by something else now. But in it, Dr. Pink talked about how research shows that traditional incentives, or what he called extrinsic motivators... Rewards, punishments, fears, threats, carrots and sticks—they actually don't work to motivate people. He said, in fact, they actually decrease performance and results. He said, in his—and this is a long, this was a, a very long study. He said, what what actually what he discovered was actually what actually motivates people are intrinsic motivators, inward convictions, and the inward conviction that motivates people more than anything else is the recognition that I am loved and I am fully accepted regardless of my performance. I'm trying to lay a foundation for us here. And last week we said, well, we're going we're to look at the why. and We're going to answer the question why. It's, it's to glorify God. Everything we do to glorify God, to really showcase, to put a spotlight on His beauty his perfections, his majesty, holiness, mercy, justice, grace, all those things, love. And then the second week, the second pillar, which is so important, is gospel. The gospel must be central. Now we're going to preach through the whole counsel of God. And we're going to work our way through New Testament books and Old Testament books and books that you may have read a bunch of times and books that maybe aren't even, you know, the Bible that that you rarely come to. But in those, we're going to showcase how all of it points to and magnifies the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived and died and was raised again so that we could have the fullness of life. Forgiveness from God so that we could be made right with the living God, the God of the universe, a God who loves us not based on how well we do every day, a God who loves us unwaveringly and in a steadfast way, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.